Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We want to start off today, though, with um, with a sort of a revisit. We're gonna we're gonna go back here a little bit, get in our time machine, and go back to August. I guess it was August, July, August, September, when the controversial story in this city was the situation with the tiny homes and the North End residents fighting back against this because they wanted to put it on a location on Strawn Street. And the people there said, no, this is an unacceptable location for us. It's near schools, it's blah, blah, blah. And, and very, very heated discussions to the point where public meetings had to be canceled. You remember all this, right? Well, my next guest through his publication, the Bay Observer put in a freedom of information request about what was going on with this and some very interesting things that he has learned. His name is John Best. He's the publisher of the Bay Observer joins me now. John, how are you today? Just great, Scott. Appreciate you doing this. Appreciate the work on this as well, because this, uh, I'll let you tell the story of what you found here, but this to me, as I read your version of this, your story of what was in those documents that you were able to get your hands on, this sounds like you've got a city staff that is got an idea in their mind and you've got the group that's behind this that has an idea in their mind, and the two are nowhere close to being along the same lines about what they're seeing here. What, what, do, you, what do you see here? I, I see something like that, Scott. Uh, just, uh, you know, for a bit of background, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, there was uh, all this fuss about a, a proposal to put 25 small shelters uh, on Strawn Street in a parking lot that was there. And of course, the community, the North End community, they heard nothing about it uh, until it was announced. And and uh, there were two highly contentious public meetings. Uh, it was clear that the, they were just totally up in arms about it. So my thought was, where did this Strawn Street come from? Because uh, I, you know, anybody that had been following the, the uh, various, you know, the homeless encampment situation um, were familiar with this organization called uh, Hamilton Association for Tiny Shelters, otherwise HATS, and that they'd been around for well over a year trying to find a location where they could put up some, some of these uh, wooden shelters for homeless people. But... Uh, as I dug into it, and, and one of the reasons we're going back so far in history, uh, I, I put in the request for these documents a couple of months ago, and I've only just got them, so that's why that's why we're so far away from the event. But but what it basically showed was uh, here's an organization trying to find a place to put the shelters, and they're looking at sites like the old uh, Dominion Glass Plant on Lloyd Street. They were looking at a site down in the uh, 403 King Street area called Cathedral Park. Uh, they were also looking at the Barton Tiffany lands. And, and all three of those locations had the advantage, at least, of really not being close to a neighborhood, not being close to a school. So the Hats people seemed to understand that if they tried to put this up in a neighborhood, it was probably going to be a problem. And then sort of out of the blue in, in July, suddenly this Strawn Street uh, proposal came forward and it was pretty clear from the documents that this was an idea that had originated with the city. Uh, they had rejected all of the various sites that uh, the HATS people had suggested. They came up with this. 
uh, the, the correspondence showed that hats weren't crazy about it. Uh, they talked about, you know, how are we going to communicate this to the public? Uh, but they they wanted to get some kind of a shelter system going, so they they reluctantly went along with it. And then, of course, we had these two very angry public meetings, and ultimately the whole the whole thing was dropped. Mm. John, here's what here's what I'm so puzzled about right off the bat with this is that if you as a city are bringing in hats to be your guides, your consultants, the people who are presumably having some expertise in this. And they say, here's spot A, spot B, spot C, but definitely not spot D. Why would you immediately then go to spot D? Why are you bringing them in for their help and then going against everything they're suggesting? Well, the A, B, and C, the, the city, uh, uh, the various documents I looked at, it's mostly emails. Uh, they, they simply said that, you know, they'd looked at the sites that were being suggested by HATS and, and one by one, they had ruled them out for one reason or another. Unfortunately, the package I got, there was nothing in there to explain why those various sites were ruled uh, inadmissible or not feasible. And, and then suddenly, uh, it really wasn't a case of hats not wanting item D, at least, because it had never been mentioned. It, it was an absolute uh, surprise that, uh, that this uh, North End Street, right across from a whole bunch of houses, was being suggested as a, a place to put 25 uh, wooden uh, buildings. Mm. So they, they clearly were blindsided by it. It didn't seem, or it seemed very obvious at that meeting that they were not thrilled. They were trying to sell it because it was their one option, but they didn't sound like this was the elixir that they were seeking. No. And as a matter of fact, one of the emails I saw was just after the Strawn Street announcement was made, that's, uh, or in fact, just before it was uh, made public, um, uh, I think hats got word maybe a week or so before it became a public matter. They sent an email to the city basically saying, could we still do the uh, Cathedral Park at Highway 403 and King Street and, and maybe make Strawn number two on the list? And and that clearly was not what the city had in mind. Mm -hmm. They they had, uh, staff had come up with this Strawn Street idea and uh, that was going to be, uh, here's your choice. It's mm. Strawn Street or it's not Strawn Street, but it's nowhere else. And so, for, for, for people who don't know exactly where, if you look out the old spectator building and go right across to the cathedral, that's Cathedral Park in between. There's like a lower grassy area there that, again, you're right, there's nothing else that would really be there. It's sort of a runoff almost. Yes, it is. There's a, there's a lane, I think, off King Street, so you can get a vehicle in there, but it's... Uh, it, it's uh, surrounded by highways and busy streets, but it's nowhere near a residential neighborhood. And I think that was probably one of the reasons they they uh, chose that site. And and so you know, I still, you know, my my goal in going through all this exercise was to find out whose idea it was. Uh, I wasn't successful with that, uh, certainly in terms of the individual or individuals, but I'm. What I went away with uh, after going through all this is I don't think the city would ever saw the tiny shelters uh, as being a major piece of the housing, uh, the, the homelessness issue. 
Uh, that, that was the sense I got because there was another letter um, from way back where it was clear that the city had offered hats instead of a shelter, uh, a place for the shelters, they offered them some of the units in Hamilton housing, some of those high rises that are operated by Hamilton housing. And, and uh, hats rejected that. They said that doesn't tie in with our mandate and what we're trying to do. And of course, it got me questioning. I thought we didn't have any uh, vacant units that were usable in the Hamilton housing Ooh. situation, but it, apparently some some were offered at some point. It's it just, uh, again, um, well, first of all, I understand from Hat's perspective, I think, after reading your story, their reluctance on the Strawn Street. They kind of have to take it because it's the only thing they're offered. But if you've put the work in to try and build this project, and it's a pilot project, and you believe, and I, I'm putting words in their mouth, but if you believe that this is destined to fail, because I think at the meeting they said it met like three of 12 criteria or some number like that. I can't remember the exact number, but if this is destined to fail, it only is going to mean, John, that the next one is going to be turned down. People are going to say, no, forget it. It doesn't work. You want to put yourself in the best position to give yourself a chance at success if you've put this effort in. And and that was the tone of several emails that Hats uh, wrote to the city. They they were willing to try to make the the Strawn Street thing work, but after the two meetings, uh, that's when Hats issued a, a news release and said, "Okay, we're pulling out of this project completely." And and frankly, uh, that's where we are right now. Uh, I don't see another Hats proposal. I think the whole thing has become tarnished by this process and. I don't hear anything about them coming back with, you know, let's go back to those other three locations. And and the irony is that one of the three locations they were very strong on was the Barton Tiffany area. And what's happened is that a spontaneous tent encampment has, has taken over that area. And it's tents. There's a bunch of old RVs and um, an enormous pile of garbage. I think if you saw my story, you saw the picture. So basically the homeless people have taken it upon themselves yeah, to adopt it. one of those sites. I, I got a text here from, uh, from Ken and he asked an interesting question. He says, it sounds like the city was deliberately trying to kill the tiny home project by offering the worst possible location without a backup. Do you get the sense that the city was trying to undermine this in order to move us off of this tiny home thing into something else? I, you know what, I, I, I didn't see uh, a smoking gun that would that would take you there. I, I think it's fair to say, though, that uh, there was a certainly an enthusiasm deficit about this HATS proposal, how it was going to fit into the whole homeless issue in Hamilton. I, I, I don't think it was, see, I, I, I think the HATS thing was very popular with counselors. And, and whenever they appeared before council, uh, some of the, you know, the newer people especially were very enthusiastic, very welcoming. So I think staff felt that they had to try to make something happen. And uh, I, I think it's fair to say that, it, that there was a lack of enthusiasm, but uh, I, I wouldn't want to go to that, that next step mm. and say that they deliberately deep-sixed it. It is, though, fascinating, and maybe it's just the timing, but you, your point that we haven't had another proposal, I know they said that it takes a month or two to get this thing up and running, which is why it was being done in August to get it before the cold weather. So maybe 
It's just that they can't really start something now because it wouldn't work at this time of year. But it is interesting that we haven't heard anything. I haven't heard anything further on this. No, and we're now we're into December. We're getting our first big snowfall of the year. So another another winter, I'm afraid, is uh, has gone is going to go by without any uh, any any of this tiny shelter proposal uh, happening. And you know, we we know that the tiny shelters seem to have done reasonably well in other jurisdictions. I I personally don't like them. I I think we need public buildings. I think we need hard infrastructure, like really hard infrastructure. Uh, so I'm not I'm not a big fan of them in terms of whether they would work or not. But I guess if you're trying to transition people out of tents, uh, they might be an in between step. And, and and you know, these are going to be people that are probably not going to work very well. They, they're already obviously not able to live in shelters for their addiction issues or whatever else is going on. So, uh, you know, they, they may provide a step in, in the right direction, but um, it's certainly not going to happen this winter in Hamilton. That is John Best. He is publisher of the Bay Observer. You can go to his site, uh, bayobserver.ca exclusive. Tiny Shelter Group tried to change city's mind about Strawn Street site. It's an interesting read for sure. Uh, John, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably saw the video of this by now, saw it online, saw it somewhere, but on the weekend, there was a protest that moved into the Toronto Eaton Centre downtown. Kids were waiting to get their picture taken with Santa, and suddenly there's hundreds of people, many of them wearing masks, protesting for Palestine, which is, people can protest. But on video, one at least is caught looking at someone very angrily while police are right there saying, if you touch me, I'll put you six feet deep. Not much doubt about what that means. And the police have, the police did nothing. And later the uh, police association, the Toronto Police Association said uh, officers were at the Eaton Centre to respond to a protest where threats were directed at a member of the public, not to police. The victim chose not to pursue the matter and then they go on. So basically we're not going to do anything about it. I got a lot of questions about this because usually the victim doesn't have to want to, we're not in the States. Police charge people for actions that happen that break our laws and yet not here. I want to bring in Jeff Manishin, criminal defense lawyer from here. Uh, Jeff, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Sure, Scott. You and I have talked many times on this show about the fact that our system is different from the American system. And even, and you, when you break the law, you don't actually break the law against the victim. You break the law against the crown. You've broken the laws of the land. So you don't necessarily need the victim. They sometimes would help if there's testimony, but you don't need them. They don't press the charges. The crown presses the charges. Why would police, if someone is clearly by what I would say is a threat, maybe you can tell me if you don't think it's a threat, but why would police say, well, you know, they didn't want it, so we're just going to leave it alone? Well, let's back up a couple of steps, Scott, because actually in the States, it's the same kind of thing. Criminal charges are not, shall we say, initiated by an individual. They are initiated by police investigators, and that's why you'll see Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus or USA versus. Okay. Okay, so it's the same kind of exercise. That's number one. Number two, Scott, we regularly see cases in the States 
where potentially a prosecution is initiated and then discontinued. You'll have adjournment and contemplation of dismissal, or you will have charges essentially that they may well arrest, release, and then there'll be a decision do they want it, do they proceed with a grand jury and indict or not? Or they'll have an initial report and they'll investigate and then may well determine. And we've seen it sometimes in relation to athletes, where there's an incident, there's a report, and ultimately it does not result in charges. Right. It's the same kind of exercise here. But is that, it, are those cases not usually where the crime is not public? So you almost need the victim to testify or else there's nothing. Here you have video. It, it's not as simple as that. You sometimes can have incidents where you might have security camera video, for example. The issue is not simply a matter of do we have the evidence to support the case. There's a, there's a component as well. When the, when the issue is a potential individual who may have been wrong, do they want to support the prosecution? Scott, I can tell you there are lots of people who are the subject of potential criminal misconduct who might say, I don't want to get tied up in the criminal process. And we don't say to them, well, that's tough for you. You're going to have to. That's not that automatic. The input of, we, you can recall, and I can recall, certainly over the course of years, the issue of victim input is, has been a significant feature, which in the last, say, 30 years has taken much more prominence. Because back, if we went back more than 30 years ago, one would, you heard complaints, hey, the victim never got their say. He or she never had the opportunity for any kind of input. So we had things like a victim's bill of rights or victim input, impact evidence. So we have a much more victim-sensitive criminal justice system than we used to. And a component of that is to try and evaluate and assess and get the input of the victim if they do or don't want to support a prosecution. So when you have a situation that's a really potentially volatile one, like a demonstration inside of a public place such as a mall, and I saw the video, I have to say from, the, from watching video, I thought the threat was directed towards the police officer. I have to tell you, I, I, you know, again, we don't have a sense of, uh, sense of it, but it looked like the individual was addressing his remarks towards the police does officer. Does it matter? I'll it, tell you why. Does it matter whether it was the cop or whether yep. it was a member of the public? Yep. I'll tell you why. On the issue of the decision as to whether or not to charge, it regularly happens from the police standpoint that they might choose to exercise their police discretion and not proceed with the charge. It is not a system done by robots where police say, I see the offense and I will charge. It's not quite that automatic. Okay, the police may decide, Scott, that in a situation that's potentially pretty volatile, that it may simply escalate. Okay, if we had a situation in which this remark was made to a police officer, but the officer grabbing the guy, handcuffing him, and away you go in a public place. And they might well say, look, the nature of the harm is he made a threatening remark towards me, period, full stop. That's what's happened. And I'm going to decide, do I think in the circumstances it is worthwhile proceeding or not? Now, there are other circumstances where you have an unruly situation, and police might arrest people to basically prevent a breach of the peace. We've seen it in some demonstrations, mm-hmm. I think the G20, for example, in Toronto, okay, where you have situations where to prevent the breach of police, a peace, police may arrest somebody, hold them for X number of hours, and then release them, and there won't be a further charge. That's a common law police power. Would have been potentially an, an option here, too, if they wanted to. But I would bet you that if we talked with the officers, they would say, look, we had to assess the situation. We thought we're going to make it way worse if we get in the realm of arresting the guy for a one-off remark, even though we have evidence of it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the basis for the exercise of discretion. Perhaps the question I would have, though, about when you say you don't want to escalate the situation, and I understand exactly what you mean by that. It's a large crowd and you don't want to have all of a sudden a riot break out. But by not charging, are you not essentially saying we are allowing the escalation against 
another group. In other words, the Jewish community. We're allowing it to be escalated against them by saying we don't want to escalate it against the people who are protesting. And it's not the same. Okay, you, if you had a situation in which you had potentially race, a race-based uh, action, I would think that the police would feel there's a greater likelihood of the need to act. But the nature of the comment wasn't race-based. It was certainly uh, a threatening remark that could potentially fit within the criminal code. But, but, Scott, if you want to change the dynamic, you could have a different situation and see a different course by the police. But we didn't have that. So we're going to deal with what we had. And by the police choosing to not exercise their discretion to arrest somebody on a charge of threatening death, when you have that remark, and, and theoretically, hey, it may have been the police turned to the person who was there and said, do you want us to arrest this guy? Do you want and the person might say, no, no, forget it. I'm not, I, don't, I don't take him seriously. I don't, don't bother with it. What if that was the, you know, what if we had that? What if we had the cop confirming with the civilian, hey, are you okay? Are you afraid of this guy? And the person's not, I'm not afraid of him. Or, or well, they we say, video, so or, have to arrest. or they say, I don't want to do it because I'm afraid that if I do have him charged, every other person in this m- group is going to come after me. The, well, certainly that's a, that's a potential concern too. So you have a situation, Scott, that I characterize as being pretty dynamic, mm. pretty fluid. As I watched it, this individual was more aggressive and was a greater source of tension than others. And the police had to be able to make the call at the time and say, "Look, how do we want to how do we want to play this?" So, okay. John, or, or, so Jeff, is the answer then? Because here's something that has been mentioned a lot today and yesterday: there were a bunch of arrests at the trucker convoy in Ottawa, where there was, a, it wasn't as angry as this generally. And so, is the is the position then? If you don't want to get arrested look so threatening that to arrest you is going to lead to a greater problem. If you are simply causing a, an inconvenience, we know we can arrest you and charge you because no one else is going to get involved. I'd never make a statement like that. I'd never suggest to somebody, look, you know, you can make a threat to kill, but don't worry about it. If you don't look too aggressive, uh, you don't need to worry about not being charged. You, you never want to suggest to somebody it's okay to commit a criminal offense to take the chance they won't be charged. That's number one. Number two, the situation in Ottawa, to my recollection, Scott, there was a long period of time where they weren't charging at all. Like, wasn't it the case that it went for days and weeks? And I was thinking to myself, hey, how come they haven't arrested a whole bunch of these people on charges of, of, of mischief by willfully interfering with public property? Because it went on for days and weeks, and it was available, and it didn't happen. Finally, towards the end with the Emergency Act, then it, then then it, it did, did see yeah. that. But before then, they could have executed arrests then, and because it's a different offense, Scott. It's not a matter of who's threatening and who's violent and who's not. It's the nature of the conduct and the extent to which it interferes with the lawful activities that are going on at the time. All right, we, we're, we're short on time, and I, I wish we could talk about this. I could go on with this with you for a long time. It's always a, an interesting discussion, but one more very quick thing. Let me say, or let, let, let's throw out an idea here that I now get charged something entirely different. I get charged six months from now with making a threat against someone for these exact words that this person said on the video. Could I use it as a criminal defense to say, but wait a second, I saw that. I saw the police there. The police didn't charge the person. Therefore, I assumed that was not a criminal offense to make a comment like that. Could that be a defense? No. And it's the analogy, Scott, is your stop for speeding and there are other people speeding. And you say, hey, I got a defense. They were speeding too. Yeah, but I happened to catch you and I chose to arrest you, and you did commit an offense, 
So you aren't, you, it's not that you, we, you can't say you didn't commit an offense because I didn't charge the other people. It's no defense there. Again, the issue of police discretion. Fascinating topic because, uh, as I say, I'm sure most people listening have seen the video and uh, they've had lots of questions about why things have happened or things have not happened. I always love having Jeff Manishin on. Really appreciate taking time today. Thanks Certainly, for doing Scott, this. I'm just trying to give perspective that I, I have a feeling that's what police would advance. It's not like I'm an apologist or statement for them, but I think that would be the explanation you'd hear. Uh, you may well be right, and I would not be at all surprised, and we may find out later, as happened in... Um, uh, Caledonia years ago, uh, we may find out police were given instructions on how to handle this situation from higher ups. That that could be the case too. The, these things, you know, we don't know everything that we see for sure. Um, listen, well, that, that's a discussion for another day though. Jeff, really appreciate you doing this. Thank okay, you. Okay, Scott, always a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson, who owns the, owns the Dundas Real McCoys and Calm Choice Realty and... Um, does a whole bunch of other things in this area. You are a you are the master, the maestro of Christmas movies. I understand. I am, and I'm happy to announce that um, Hallmark believe they've come up with a be- second uh, storyline. <laughs> this will be the the story of Don Robertson, Don and Sue's Robertson. That storyline will be the new Hallmark movie. Anything people will any weep. second storyline. People will weep at the love story. Other than the good-looking man or woman that comes back to their hometown, and a lot of that's filmed in Dundas. Eh? Oh yeah, and oh yeah, it, because it's such a quaint little town. Yeah. And no, it's the high-powered woman who return, who leaves her lawyer job in New York City to come to her hometown to deal with something, and bumps into her high school love who now owns the Christmas tree farm and gets snowed in. And while they are skating around the pergola in the town square, in the lit to within an inch of its life with Christmas lights town square, they fall in love and she decides to abandon her law practice and open a tiny bookstore on Main Street. (laughs) 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 Thank you. You're welcome. That is every single Hallmark movie. And she's walking down the street with her niece who is so cute when they bump into him. Yes. And and it it always snows exactly on cue. And as I say, there is not a spare... Christmas light within a hundred miles of that town <laughs> because they are all hung up. You can you can see only two things from space: the great the man-made, the Great Wall of China, and whatever little town the Hallmark Christmas movie is held in from the Christmas lights. You uh, uh, you've <laughs> can been... you tell that they're on in our house sometimes? <laughs> Clark Griswold's house. That's right. Have you uh, have you ever been to Disney? Oh in, yeah, in uh, the winter and so, oh yeah, so we went a few years ago. But the, before COVID, our whole family went down as adults. We went down and just did a Disney trip uh, for Christmas, and it was fun. Is not it, not on Christmas, but just before. Is it but not cool how they make it snow. They have uh, bubbles. Yeah, soap. Yeah, but it's so cool, yeah. and they have lights on them, and you think it's it's seventy five degrees out and it's snowing. I yep. mean, it's it's they know how to do it down there. They they know how to dress it up, and they also <laughs> know how to charge. <laughs> yes. They know how to charge. So we, when we were down there, and see, here's the thing. The, the, the one thing that Disney has figured out, and probably Universal too, but I think Disney more than anyone, is the line, well, it's a once in a lifetime thing. That, that is the get out of jail free for every, well, I know that this, whatever it is, costs $100, but it's just, it's a once in a lifetime thing. And they have about 10 of them. Oh, oh yeah. And so we, <laughs> right? we got... 
sucked into going to their after hours. They closed the park at a certain time and now they have a separate thing with presumably allegedly smaller crowds and more access. Just in to, case you have money left. Well, we decided that we were going to sign up for one of these things only to discover two problems. One, it poured rain, <laughs> which wasn't great. And two, there didn't appear to be any fewer people there for this. Just a lot more money into the Disney Park coffers. Uh, we learned our lesson. I'm not a ride guy, but uh, when when I went down and you had said, go on this one ride that was kind of, you sat in a chair and you go over the orange groves and you can smell the mist. And uh, I, for, I forget, you told me to go on. It was wonderful. Yeah. I forget what it was called. I don't even know if it's still there because this is 12 years ago. Yeah, probably. it is. What is that called? No, it's. Uh, it was very cool. Uh, yeah, it's at Epcot and it's. You um, go over the water. Soren. Soaring, yes. Yeah, soaring. So, yes, I was I was actually, so, okay, this is totally not where we were going today, but I, for a media event, I was down there for the opening of that ride. And oh. myself and another media person, we got onto the first group to go on the ride. Now, there had been test rides and everything, yeah. but when it was officially open, we were on the very first ride, and there was a third media person who was sitting with us, and after we got off, uh, the person said to me, uh, do, do you know who you were sitting next to? And on the other side of me was this guy who was heavily tattooed and I had no idea who he was. And I said, no, who was she? He goes, that's Joey Fatone from Sync, one of the boy bands. And I was sitting next to this guy who's probably worth 150,000 times more than I'll ever make in my entire life. And he's just, yeah, we were riding Soren and cruising over the orange glo- groves. So does he have more tattoos than you? Probably he, well, since I have none, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, that is totally uh, irrelevant to anything we were going to talk about today. But if you do go down to Disney, it is a, Christmas time is a nice, uh, is a nice time. A little busy, not going to lie, a little oh. busy, little crowded. The, uh, apparently one of the best times to go, and I'm not trying to do a Disney ad because I'm not going back, but is the uh, weekend after the American Thanksgiving. Or after Labor Day. Yeah. Anytime because the kids go back yeah. uh, September, October. Yeah. It's, Thanksgiving's um, such a big deal in the States. It's almost a bigger deal than Christmas is. And be, imagine the place is flooded. So, we, yes, we have uh, a, a friend. He may be listening right now. And uh, this was one of the most boneheaded things anyone's ever <laughs> done. Uh, he and his wife decided that they were going to do a Disney trip. And somehow it skipped their mind when they booked it that, oh yeah, July 4 is a big day down in the States. <laughs> so they were there over the f- first week of July, not thinking about it. Well, it gets worse because they had two very young kids. They booked it eight months out. When they booked it and locked in, they didn't realize that she was pregnant. <laughs> so when they got down there, they had two young kids and a brand new, like month old infant in a stroller. And he said there were times... We just stood there because we couldn't move. <laughs> there were so many people compressed. We just stood and waited for something to let lighten up. It was, uh, I, th- that has, I have no interest in that, no. in doing that. No, not at all. Not at all. All right. Um, let me ask you about this because you and I, I mean, you're a hockey guy first and foremost. And I think you and I talked maybe last year about Alex Ovechkin, how he was going to catch Wayne Gretzky and become the all-time goal-scoring leader. And I'm not all that excited about it because 
I was a fan of Wayne Gretzky, and also I am. It's not that I don't like Alexander Ovechkin. I think that a lot of the goals he scored, I think, have been just kind of cheap. He just stands in the same spot all the time. They're, they're not. He's not cheating. He's just. It's the same thing over. I, I don't find it all that exciting to see a guy just stand there and one time it from the same place every time. Alexander Ovechkin, I think, needs like sixty something goals to catch Gretzky. He's only got five goals this year. Has he has has time? Do you think that? Do you think he's actually going to do it now, or has time caught up to him and he's going to have to play till he's sixty two in order to get this now? I was going to say at this rate, he has to play another ten years, which is probably doubtful. Um, who knows? I mean, he's a goal scorer, so he could get five this weekend. But when you're past the quarter pull, uh, quarter point of the season, and you only have five, and that gives you twenty. And I can tell you that sometimes with goal scorers like Ovechkin or almost any goal scorer, when that tap gets snapped off and they can't get their touch back, I mean, it's if you're really a fan of that particular player, it's really frustrating to watch because they can't tee it up, they can't they can't tip them in, they just it just stops, and you'll see guys go score 40, 40, 45, 40, 40, 45. 12, 18, 21, and they can just never get back to where they were. Now, he had some huge years, obviously, but quite frankly, I'm pretty content to let the kid from Brantford be the reigning NHL goal scorer. Uh, well, here, it, so Washington, Ovechkin's team, is not very good this year. So that's one thing, first of all. Is Doesn't help. There's, there's nobody else that seems to be much of a threat, and it seems as though because of that, goalies have finally figured it out that if we don't have to defend a lot of other things, when we're on the power play, as soon as that pass goes across to Ovechkin, just come out and take the angle because he's just going to be blasting it. And I was watching some highlights the other day and he probably had eight shots from that spot. And in past years, one or two or three of those would have gone in. And it's like the goalies now know no one else is going to be able to do anything. So just take that away from him. Well, they, I mean, they've known that for years. Uh, yeah, but he had options. He could pass it back. He, now it's just he's going to get it and fire it every time, it looks like. Well, yeah, and he's trying to catch that record, right? Uh-huh. right? And it's not working. And, like, they've all, like, the other guy that was like that was Brett Hull, who would snap it from similar spots. He had a couple spots he'd go to, but their shot is so hard and so deceiving and so quick. It, it's like, like, um, oh. Austin Matthews. Yep. And it just, it happens so quickly, but Austin Matthews is doing it at full speed. You're right. Ovechkin has, he's a one-trick pony. Well, and he's stationary now, more often than not. He's firing at stationary. Matthews is all over the ice. You can't. That's what I mean. He's doing it at full speed. Yeah, but he's also shooting from different spots. Ovechkin's shots are almost all now seemingly coming from, the dangerous shots are coming from the same place. And. If you're a goalie, and I was a very low-end, not great goalie, but if I know what, if you know where the shot's coming from, even a mediocre goalie has a better chance to stop it than if there's some sort of trick. Let me tell you something I think that's changed and, and may have some effect on him or the goal goaltender's uh, ability to be able to defend against it. Is there equipment? Like some of the goalie pads, some of the single goalie pads for one leg in the National Hockey League are bigger than Mike Palmatier was. Mm. Yep, well. 
that, well, yeah, that's look, uh, look at the stuff they've got. Those guys that are six foot four, and and do you remember the Carol Burnett episode where she was basically wearing a uh, drape? Yes, as a dress. That's kind of how their goal. Uh, the, it's down a bit, but you're right; they are huge. And, and yeah, Alan Bester had a his first car was smaller than some of the pads. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, but it just. It, it seems so weird that this has always been successful for him and for whatever reason, it's just not working. And maybe it's just a dry spell, but it just feels when you watch the highlights and night after night, you, I, I go on to the NHL app many nights and when Washington is playing, I'm clicking on to see has Ovechkin scored and yeah. no. And then you watch some of the highlights and he's shooting from the same place that he's always shot from, but it looks like the goalies now don't worry about other teammates. And they're just yeah. taking that away. Yeah, he, he. I mean, you're right. There's not much chance with a weak team. He's passing off to a guy at the side, of the side of the net, and he's trying to catch Kretzky. And everybody knows that. Everybody knows it. Yep. And they're feeding him. I'll be very content. I don't care if he gets close, but I think the kid from Brantford would be a lot of people happy if he, re, he retains the all-time scoring championship. See, now I don't think there's any chance unless Ovechkin were to, and I, nobody wants this, unless Ovechkin was to suffer some severe injury that basically stopped him from playing, I don't see any way he doesn't get the record because I can, I, I see him playing until he gets it. Well, how old is he? Um, 37, maybe? Let me look here. He's gonna 38? Have to, he's going to have to play another two or three years at least. Um, oh, well, for sure he At is. At this rate. For sure he is. Um, but I mean, if, if, if a guy, uh, if a guy goes forever just to get a record, does that diminish it? If, if he, if he sticks around for, let, let's say he's only scoring 20 goals a year. He's got 67 he's got to get to catch him. That would mean that if he's getting 20 goals a year, he has this year, another year, another year, and then most of the way through. He is 38 right now. So if he's 43 and bumbling and stumbling along, scoring 20 goals, 15 goals, 10 goals, does that diminish the record or does it not diminish it at all? He got it. It won't, uh, there won't be a little star beside it saying he had to play till he was, looked like Rumpelstiltskin to win it. Like it, he will, he will then have. Clearly, more goals than anybody else. Will he be the greatest goal scorer in the National Hockey League? That's the argument you bring in. And Gretzky did it in twenty years. He, I believe, so started when he was. I think, and you're also not counting Gretzky's WHA goals, which yeah. I have always wondered to this point why they don't count. But nonetheless, they don't. Well, throw Bobby Hulse in there and see where he is. Yeah, yeah, and I get it. The WHA was not the NHL, and so I, you know, I understand. I, I but the f- fact is, I just, you know, when when Wayne Gretzky retired, his last year, he had nine goals and fifty three assists. Not horrible. There's lots of guys in hockey that would be happy to have a sixty two point season. But he knew it was time. But that was not Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, that was not Wayne Gretzky. And and you know, one thing that I always that always sticks with me about something Wayne Gretzky said was you better play, you better give your best effort every game because there's someone in the audience that's seeing you for the first and only time. This is the only time they'll see you play. I just wonder if you're Alex Ovechkin and you're 42 years old, 
and you're a one-trick pony now who just gets on that left face-off dot and just blasts away and tries to score. And maybe just plays power play. And maybe just plays whatever. Do you diminish your legacy even if you become the greatest goal scorer of all time? I, I don't know. I just, to me, it, just, it seems almost sad to stick around just to be chasing a mark when you have been an, a truly great player like he has been. Yeah, he'll be he, he'll be remembered as a great player. His um, his affiliation with some world leaders now doesn't put him in favor with an awful lot of True. people. Um, again, I I'd be very happy if the kid from Brantford retained it, and Gretzky could have kept playing, but I don't think there was much doubt that he was going to retire in 1999. No, he, he he Wayne had a knack for drama and symmetry, and uh, you know, and I do wonder if it had not been like if 99 had been another year off, if he would have stuck around to play one more year just to, but who knows? I mean, he didn't have to because it didn't. It worked out the way it did. He's probably making more money now than than the last year he played, which is crazy. Um, yeah. He's, uh, I mean, some of the endorsement stuff he does, he did some stuff with TD and, and was very handsomely rewarded um, based on a guy that's a friend of mine and knew him very well. And that probably was as much money as he made the last year with the Rangers. So. All right, here, here, before we go to a break, here is your question for the day. You have a choice. You can go back and draft, because don't forget, they came up along in subsequent years. O- Ovechkin was drafted first overall when there was a strike, so he didn't play. He and Sidney Crosby played their first NHL game the same year because they were coming back after the lockout. Yeah. Alex Ovechkin, uh, career. 1,502 points, 827 goals, 1,502 points. Sidney Crosby, only five hundred, only 567 goals, 966 assists, 1,533 points. They are basically almost deadlocked. Different player. Mm-hmm. Which one would you take first if you had to choose one of the two? Crosby. Why? Canadian. That's it? No. He's won more Stanley Cups. He's done more for uh, Canada. Golden goal. If you were drafting, though, just to build a team around, do you build? Do you grab the sniper or do you grab the center who is a little more of a setup man? Sidney Crosby. And Sidney Crosby is still producing today at a pretty phenomenal rate. When they both get in, you've probably got the stats. I don't know what Crosby's got for points this year, but I'm sure it... Uh, it's better than a point a game this year. And 31 I'll, points in 29 games. I'll bet it's Hammer and uh, Ovechkin. How many points Ovechkin got? Ovechkin this year is at uh, 28 games, 17 points, five goals in that only. So, uh, but I, I take I take Sid the kid. I mean, again for no other reason he's a Canadian kid, but he's won more Stanley Cups. He's won a gold medal, and he is the poster boy for um, hard work, um, a model person. Although Ovechkin hasn't been in any trouble, um, took less money, so the guys around them and the team could be better. You know, he's he could have made more than eight point seven million dollars a season in his heyday, and uh, I and think let's not forget that if Crosby had not missed a bunch of games because of that concussion or neck injury or whatever yeah. it ultimately ended up becoming, right in his prime, there's probably a lot bigger gap than there is right now in the points. Well, what are the difference in the games played? 
let's you see. You did points, but you didn't. Uh, yep. Uh, games played is twelve nineteen for Crosby, and thirteen seventy five for Ovechkin. So a season so, and a third. Yep. Yep. No, no. It's. Uh, I would. I mean, I, I still think, and we do have to go here, but I, I still, and I said this at the time, or roughly <coughs> around the time, and I still think it was a really good idea. The NHL sometimes lacks sizzle. They got a, usually a great product. Sometimes they just don't sell themselves all that well. Coming out of that lockout when Ovechkin and that whole class of his got drafted, I still think it would have been a fascinating thing to say for the next year's draft, you can take the guy who is up next or you can exchange. Like you could, if you were, so if you were, um, you could trade in the guy that you picked to get a different pick <laughs> or you could keep the guy you took last year, but we're going to skip over. Anyway, I, I, there was a way to do it. I, I, I explained it better another time. Um, but I, th- there, there are things that I would have loved to have seen. I would have loved to know, would Washington have kept Ovechkin over Crosby if they had the chance to, you know, we didn't play. So you get to, we're keeping the same draft order. You can keep your guy that you have, or you can look at this year's draft class, turn the guy in that you had, take someone else. It's almost like a white elephant Christmas gift exchange. (laughs) And then, you know, so yeah, you can take Crosby. Ovechkin now goes back into the draft. Who's number two? They can then, I'd love to see what would have happened if. uh, Do you lay in bed at night thinking of this stuff? Uh, sometimes the last few weeks, you and I may have talked about this last week, but the last few weeks, so much discussion in the NFL about replays and penalties and what's a penalty and what wasn't and who called what and everything else. And again, it got me thinking of something and I know we've talked about this a long time ago, but it seems to rise up every once in a while. If we're going to have replay of any kind in sports, should it just not be all replay? What is the, if, if offside in hockey can be reviewed, why not a penalty be reviewed? Some penalties can be now, but if you, if the object of review of instant replay is to get it right, why not say everything then is reviewable? You can, coaches can have three replays per game, so you can't just do it endlessly, but if the object is to get it right, why not make every single rule reviewable? Because they want to get the ones right that matter. If it's 7-2 and the guy's a foot offside and nobody scores, why are you reviewing it? The second reason would be they don't want the games to be four and a half hours long. Like baseball, they're trying to shorten the time frame. The the NFL... So get rid of all reviews then? No, you can have a select few. You asked me if they should review them all, and I'm trying to rationalize that. (coughs) But... um, they just review the ones that seemingly matter. Like I said, if it's 7-2, like that, that play where the Kansas City guy was offside we were talking about last week, if the score is 41-3... to Nobody cares. Nobody cares. But and there's, that's not there's even a couple of cute things on Facebook on that where they had, where they had the uh, Kansas City guy lined up be, be, in the defensive back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, and, and the irony of that is that one, not to get back into that one, but that's that one... Even if you'd reviewed that, there's no problem because he was offside. That's not. And nobody argued called, that he was they offside. They correct. My question is, if the idea is that you want to get it right, and I'm with you, I don't want to slow the games down so every single thing goes to a review. But if if you want to get it right, 
and you have a penalty call that's a phantom call, why should a coach not be able to say, I want you to look at that because he didn't high stick him. He just flipped his head back, but he never got touched. We want that penalty taken off the board. Or, uh, you know, I, I, like to me, it's a, I don't under, I just don't understand why certain things can have it and not if the idea is that this is about getting it right. If it's about getting it right, then get it right. I wouldn't be surprised within, even within my lifetime, which may not be that much longer the way I take care of myself, but it, it may be rather quick, but um, artificial intelligence may be able to referee a perfect game. Well, it, it would be able to- There's umpire, enough cameras. It would be able to umpire a perfect game behind the plate as it calling balls and strikes, which is really- Okay, so this is really where you start getting into this question because having a a computer call balls and strikes wouldn't slow the game down at all. No. Not at all. It wouldn't change anything except that you would presumably get it all right every time and yet we don't, and I think a lot of people say, no, I don't want that. The thing that's always intrigued me about balls and strikes in baseball is for a particular team, they're going to go and they're going to say, all right, Radley's doing game one. This is his strike zone. And it seems perfectly acceptable. That's his strike zone. Yeah. Don Robertson's doing it. He's going to call under the armpits. And if it's not like the knees, it can be above the knees, not calling it. That's his strike zone. And you have to understand that. That used to happen in the National Hockey League because guys would say, Bobby Myers is going to referee the game this way. Bill Friday is going to referee it that way. And the coaches adapted and it was a perfectly, perfectly acceptable thing. Nowadays, th- there isn't that play. Like, uh, who was the great the umpire that Ron wrote the Luciano. book? Ron Luciano. He could do whatever he wanted. Yep. He he, would, he, I remember reading his books. He had about five of them. One of the great things, he and Earl Weaver, the old Oyer, Orioles manager, used to hate each other. Yeah. And he probably 30 times threw Earl Weaver out of games before the game started. Earl Weaver would come out to home plate to hand in the the lineup lineup card and they'd say something and he'd toss them before the first pitch. And it was, you know, that was just today you do that two or three times to the same manager and you're probably going to be in trouble because nobody's here to, you know, but But they were part of the show back then. But with baseball, Don, baseball in general, of all the sports, of all the sports, you could very easily yes. call a baseball game using cameras and a computer-generated strike zone, not slow things down at all. Every play on the bases is reviewable. You can, you, if, if you think that it's, now, you can only to a certain number of times you can challenge, yep. but as long as you the get it right. Ones. Yeah, but as long as you're the, if you're a manager and you get it right, you don't lose your challenge. So every single base, why not just say, let's just have a camera there. We can see it really quickly. And on the scoreboard, there's a green light and there's a red light. And if you're out, the red light flashes. And if you're safe, the green light flashes. Why do we need the umpires on the field? Within my lifetime, you might not see them. Maybe, maybe. And again, with football though, uh, it's, again, it seems to me. There's holding on every play. Every play there's holding. Yeah. I don't know how. They cheat those guys. Yes. I don't know how you would get rid of, I don't. If you were to say we are going to call everything by the letter of the law, you may never have a play in football that ever, the game could <laughs> last for an infinite number of amount of time because 18 hours after, it's like a cricket match, eight, but 18 hours after it starts, we're still trying to run the first play because there's been a penalty on every single attempt. So they're not going to do it because they have one game starts at one and the second one starts at seven minutes after four. 
and they seemed they seem to be able to pull it off week after week. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, that there's a part of this that I also wonder about, and you may have just you know they do fine, they do fine. I I wonder if in the NFL offices sometimes when people are losing their minds about the officiating, if they're sitting there having a brandy and snickering, saying we got them talking again. Yeah. Not that, not, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the league is rigging this. I don't mean that, but that, you know, it was a close call. It was a controversial call that we believe the ref did his best to be in position, you know, but, but there's a human element. Hey, we got them talking. There's debate on every sports radio station in North America t- for the next three days about this. But that's all we want. It won't be long. They're going to ask Taylor Swift what she thinks. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't already. I'm surprised they haven't already. I, I, um, if I was a play, you know, the, the one team you, I heard yesterday on post game shows, they were talking on TV after the Bills game with the Cowboys. I heard people saying, oh, the, the, the Bills are the team you don't want to run into if they can make it into the playoffs. And I agree. They would be considering how low they will get in, how low ranked they probably would be. For some team that thinks they're getting an easy ride to the conference championship, you got to play the bill. That's a bad, yep. you're hoping for a soft touch, not for yep. them. However, um, the team you do not want to play, I'm convinced, in the playoffs is the Kansas City Chiefs because of the widespread belief that the NFL desperately wants as much Taylor Swift as possible. I would not, I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting they're rigging it. I don't believe that. Well, you're inferring it. No, I'm saying the belief, the widespread belief. There's a, you know, if you are a player on another team, you could easily come to believe that the NFL really wants her in and they're going to get some gentler calls. And again, I don't, I don't, I don't believe the NFL would ever sit down with an official and go, hey, you know, if Kansas City could get through, we got bigger ratings. Because it doesn't really matter. The Super Bowl is the Super Bowl. Yep. And by that time, has everyone not seen Taylor Swift enough that we don't need to see her in the private box. Apparently not. But uh, again, I just, if I'm a player on another team, I'm not sure that I want to have that in my mind that somehow the officials are if, if helping. The, if leagues could get the teams they wanted in the playoffs or in the Stanley, say the Stanley Cup finals, yes. the Leafs would have been there. Uh, the TV rights holders deserve I'm to have the sure. Toronto Maple Leafs there. I'm not sure. Once after paying $748 billion. I think if the league could have whoever they want, every Stanley Cup final would either be Los Angeles or Chicago against the Rangers. Yes. I every agree. one of them. Every one of them. I, I, I saw a very funny tweet the other day after the Shohei Otani thing and a bunch of American broadcasters and writers were saying, well, this is better for the game that he's in a big market. Someone tweeted out, it's, that's correct. And what should be in the next collective agreement is the Yankees and the Dodgers get their first pick of all free agents first. And then anyone left over will go in descending order of market size and they can then have their crack at it because that would be good for the game. Sure. But a lot of people believe that. Most of them don't know how big Toronto is. That's true. But a lot of people believe that. Yeah. A lot of people believe that, and a lot of people just look at those NFL ads about these about the script. A lot of people believe the NFL is scripted. A lot of people do. The WWE isn't even that scripted. Some days, I think people, most people, know the story that earlier this year in September you brought Burton Cummings to play in your backyard. You've had 
two and a half months now to think about it and look at the, any regret, because it was not inexpensive, any regrets about doing that? Or was that one of those things where you go, no, I don't care what it costs. It was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah. Do it again in a heartbeat. Really? Yeah. With, with who? Burton Cummings. Oh, you'd bring him back again? Well, I, no, no, no regrets. I mean, yeah. I, I do it again if I had, you know, knowing what I know now, I'd do it again. Yes. Um, How many people got in touch with you after though to say, uh, Don, I didn't get an invitation. It was a few. You'd have a much bigger audience next time because there'd be a lot of people saying, yeah. I expect to be well, on the and, list next and, time. And some of the people that I ran into, I went, oh, they probably should have been there. Because <laughs> I did it from memory, right? Yeah. Clients, I mean. Oh, I believe it. The uh, The person I sold my first house to in the first week of the business was there. I made sure they were there. Yeah. So anyway. So I, I get it. We've I, got a wedding coming up with my daughter and I, believe me, the sitting down and going through the list yeah. is, is like dicey. It's like, who are we forgetting that we're going to have a panic later on? Who are we forgetting or who can we get away with not asking because the list is getting out of yeah. control? Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. That's good that there's no, re- so who would be next? I bring Burton, Burton Cummings back alone to do his other album. Like he did all guess who stuff. He didn't do any individual from his solo career and that, uh, revving up your engine is a Burton Cummings song, so he has a whole different catalog. All right. So, so when is that? When can we make the? Can we write the date in? August. August. All right. There you go. So, if you're driving, no, by I haven't <laughs> set anything up, so don't start texting <laughs> me. If you're driving by Cope Town in August somewhere, or up highway, wherever, and you hear Burton Cummings, it's probably him. Yeah. <laughs> probably him this time. Dawn, uh, to you and Suze and the whole Robertson clan as well, Merry Christmas and thank you for all your time coming in this year and we look forward to the new and improved and expanded Don Robertson in 2024. Well, I can't expand much more. I got to get that <laughs> fixed. I got to get to the gym. Anyway, Scott, thanks for having me in and Merry Christmas to you and your family. Happy New Year and to everybody that takes the time to listen. It's always fun to come in. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everybody. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.